You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Having children can put the kibosh on a number of things. For a while, it can feel like the only thing that's possible is survival. At one point, Kate Langbrook had four children under six. And so it wasn't until her children were much older, inspired by a fresh desire to really live life, that Kate and her husband Peter decided it was time to throw caution to the wind. That was when she uprooted her family and moved everyone to Italy. Kate has written about her time in Italy in her book, Ciao Bella, Six Take Italy. Hi, Kate. How are you? (laughs) Even as I hear your description of me, Siobhan, I think I I sound nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes you do, but also Mm. in a completely beautiful way. I mean, what made you first fall in love with Italy? Well, uh, we hadn't been to Italy a lot. We had been really never been to Europe at all except for when I was young because my dad was from Holland and so I'd been to family trips to Europe. But I had never, as an adult, really been to Europe. I'd been to France once. Mm. And most of our travelling had been done on, you know, the budgets that we had at that time, which was we'd gone to Asia a lot. We'd been to just about every country in Asia. Um, I'd been to the States because of my work slightly and I had a lot of friends there. But we had never been to Italy until I think twenty. I think it was 2015 and we went because my son had gone on a school trip. Our eldest son, Lewis, who who had been sick when he was younger and he went to, all our kids go to state school. We're very passionate about public education. So even though it was just a little state, primary state school around the corner, when, when their deputy principal was retiring, as a gift, she gave to the school that she would organise a trip with our school's sister school, which we didn't even know there was one in Italy. <laughs> and because I had had that year off work, I was going to go with Lewis, but I had returned to work and I couldn't go. And mm-hmm. so my mother-in-law, we said to her, would you like to go on this school trip with Lewis? And she was like, would I? <laughs> like, <laughs> really? And so she went with Lewis. And they ended up going for three months. Oh, my word. The school trip was only for two weeks. And Marie, <laughs> my mother-in-law, said to me, do you mind if Lewis and I stay a bit longer? And I was like, actually, I was going to suggest that because it's such a long way to go for two weeks. Yeah. I was thinking they'd go for like another week. Or... <laughs> then Peter said to me one night, do you know how long mum is planning to be away with Lewis? And I said, No. He said, three months. I said, what? I said, we've got to go over there and get him. Like that old lady's abducted him. It's either us or Interpol. So we got the kids and we went and met them over in Italy. Wow. So it was the first time we'd ever been. Were it not for that, we probably still never would have been because it's a long way to go to Europe. It's expensive for six people. And we never have our holidays at the right season for Europe. You know, we get two weeks off in the middle of the year. Uh, They get 14 weeks off in the middle of the year, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
that's so interesting because I assumed that maybe you and Pete had been as a young couple, it's a very romantic place to go. And I thought, oh, she must have fallen in love with it when she was younger before the kids and then it was her dream to go ah. with the kids later. But you actually, you you discovered your dream with your children, yes. which is, is kind of, you know, that's fascinating to me because where do you have the time to fall in love with the country when you well? Come? The time, the, if you're ever going to have time to fall in love with the country, it's when you go to Italy with children. Yeah. Because Italians adore children, adore them. So travelling with them there is not so much a hardship as it is an actual blessing because people are like, hey, the children, hey, you know, but the children, <laughs> yes. Like they will do anything for children. <laughs> And secondly, I think because we had, we'd always had this tension ever since we'd had children in our travelling plans because my husband's always been one of these people that's like, let's go to this museum and then we're only three minutes from this and then we'll climb the top of blah, blah. And then, and I was always like, mate, I'm exhausted. Yeah. This is not a holiday. Anyway, so we always had that slight you know we were slightly at odds over that and and eventually I won that just by having more children (laughs) by the time we had four children Peter was very happy for me to say I think we should just do a week in a villa here we'll go to Venice we'll go to Florence you know we'll go to Pisa and then we'll have a week in a villa so he was quite happy with that so it was actually the week that we had at this villa, which was idyllic like like so much of Italy, and yeah. friends of ours, Australians who were resettling and going to London, had were at the start of their big road trip through Europe. They came and stayed with us and it was while we were lying by the pool there, I said to Peter, it's such an amazing country. I totally understand people who do that. I want to live in Italy for a year thing. Mm. And he was like, yeah, I mean, as soon as you get there, if if there's a part of you that's still alive, <laughs> you know, if you're not totally dead inside through <laughs> what life has done to you, then Italy will rekindle that tiny, that tiny little flame and get the bellows out and blow and soon your heart will be fully ablaze again. Which is so exciting, but still for children and moving there for a year, it's very different to having a holiday, isn't it? I mean, what you, you had that experience where it was lovely with your family and you falling in love with Italy with them all around you, but what made you just grab hold of that dream in, and decide to do it in 2019? I mean, your kids at that point were older, they were teenagers the teenagers aren't always easy to move countries with. Um, well, luckily the two elders were teenagers. Yes. We still had two younger ones who are more malleable. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, I would not attempt it with four teenagers. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Uh, uh, I've got a period of time to yes, work it out. Yes, exactly. And I do <laughs> say this to my friends. I say there's a window and by the time we got there with Lewis – our eldest, so he was 15 when we arrived, that window was closing. 
Mm-hmm. We just got there. But because by then he had a secret girlfriend in Australia and you know what happens oh. when you turn 15, like your life starts to kind of emerge. Yes. As distinct to your life with your family, you know. But that's kind of interesting, right, because he's part of the reason why you took such a leap while you were prepared to take such a leap. Yes. Can you tell us a story about how Lewis, even though he might have been reluctant at the time, why he was part of the inspiration to do this trip? Well, when Lewis was sick, as I mentioned earlier, he was he had leukaemia when he was six mm. and the treatment for it lasted for four years, or three wow. and a half to four years. And particularly the first 18 months, we had such a rough trot with it. We nearly lost him a couple of times. It was horrendous. Mm. And because we also had three small children as well, we kind of were in this, well, life has to go on mode. Mm. And we were very, um, I I, I don't even, I don't even have really words to articulate how low we were at that time. Low, but you couldn't stop low. Low, you had to keep going low. Mm. You all have listeners who will have experienced this and, and, well, you have to do it for the kids. You, yes. You have, I yes. Never, I've always found that really such a challenge to get my head around that your whole being would just be falling apart, your heart would be breaking and still that knowledge that I can't let go of myself. I want to fall in a heap but for him, for Lewis, but also for your other kids. Yes, because what you realise is there's no one else who will do it. There's no one else who can do it. It's your job. You're you're the parent. You know, it's like people often like to talk in in a broader sense about, you know, oh, the system let the children down, the system let the children down. But mostly it's the parents who have let the children down. It's our Mm. job. Mm. And it it requires, I remember speaking to, um, interviewing some women who do a a podcast for um, parents who have children with special needs. And they said that talking to other parents who'd been through similar things that was finding their tribe because nobody there's a a certain connection you get when you've been through that kind of pain I mean do you do you feel that that experience um kind of forged you in a way like it changed you and and in a way opened you to a a whole set of different parents and a connection in that way oh definitely definitely and so you know when I'm very sympathetic towards those people who are like, I don't know what to say because I think there was a time in my life when I was that person and I didn't know what to say. Mm. I mean, you don't always know what to say anyway because sometimes there are no words. But I am very empathetic to people who are trying to save the life of someone else. Mm. There's nothing quite like it. And you've thrown everything at it and with a lot of likelihood that you might lose. Yeah. And that is kind of counter to what we're always told about life, you know, that if you dream it, you can do it. And Mm. if you give it your all, you know, you'll be rewarded. And as we know, that is not always the case. Yeah. And so it's a very, um, it's a very confronting and cruel reality sometimes but it's that very the very cruelty of that reality that makes you realize that life is actually the gift yeah 
And also I think the interesting thing is, you know, if people hear about, oh, you know, Kate moved to Italy and it sounds like such a gorgeous dream and a beautiful thing, but it takes a lot of courage to do something like that. And I wonder if those years with Lewis was also, it also made your whole family find courage. Mm, That's interesting. I guess it does take a lot of courage. We never thought about that at all. Mm. Like never, never. (laughs) Isn't that strange? Once we had decided, we never questioned why we were doing it. And then I think because there were so many logistics to to um, attend to, there wasn't really time. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a person who believes in, as I say in in the book, like feeding the the troll of anxiety mm-hmm. because it's it's never satisfied. The troll of anxiety is always hungry. And so we don't really ever entertain what if in a negative way. Yeah. Our whole family, I guess, you know, if there is a a map for your your family's emotional navigation of the world, ours is what if this happens and this is always like a great thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that we've always got is, and we've said this ever since Lewis was first sick, when we would try to maybe go away, you know, on a drive or, you know, for an overnight, we would always say, if it's no good, we'll just turn back. Well, who cares? We tried. It didn't work out. I said to Peter, if we hate it, we'll come back after three months. I don't care. I'm not doing anything to prove anything to anyone other than for us to have an adventure. Yeah. I mean, that actually would have been quite embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> But it would have made the book a hell of a lot shorter. (laughs) (laughs) And what about career-wise? Did you get any pushback from colleagues, bosses? um, Because you were, I mean, you still are doing so well, but you were hosting a breakfast show, you are on the project, you were doing all these things. You could say your star was rising or it was up there in the sky. Did anyone sort of say to you, Kate, what are you doing? Why are you going now? Um, I was doing drive at the time, not, oh, not, drive. not breakfast. Um, no, thank goodness. I mean, if I was doing breakfast, it would, it would explain some of my, um, some of the lack of clarity in my making. <laughs> but yeah, no, people were astounded by it. And especially radio people, because I was doing national drive with Husey, who I'd worked with for 18 years. Mm. and they're the sorts of jobs that people dream of in radio and that you ostensibly spend your whole career working towards getting one of. And I loved the show and I loved Husey and I loved the station we were working at. And my husband, in fact, kept saying to me, you won't, you won't be able to give it up. How can you give this up? And I was like, I will, I will. Yeah. And when I told Husey, of course, he had other ideas. Like he was just like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was like women, it was like women who leave their husbands and the husbands are like, but I thought we had a really happy marriage. <laughs> and the women are like, yeah, but I want something else. And the men just can't conceive of that. That's what uh, that's what it was like with Hugh. 
And then so he came up with, because he's a, just a really determined, free-thinking person. Yeah. David William Hughes, he's quite interesting. And he came up with this plan, which was that I would do the show for six months from Italy. The first six months, just give me the first six months, just give me the first six months and then you can do whatever you want. What are you going to do anyway? But you can do whatever you want. I'm like, oh, thank you. (laughs) Anyway, so I ended up, so our producer, Sash, when we arrived in um, Bologna, our producer, Sasha, who we've also worked with for 18 years, had spent more time in Bologna than I had wow. because she had been there in the Nove- November before finding a place for us to set up a studio. So she'd spent a week there. Yeah. And I, I remember one stage saying to her, what's it like? <laughs> <laughs> you think I can live here a year? Yeah, that's right. So. So how did you choose Bologna? We had a, um, I talk about this in the book because we had decided that we were going to live in the north, you know, so like not down south, it was a bit too rustic for us. And we had, we'd settled on, I mean, we did a BuzzFeed quiz. (laughs) (laughs) What Italian city are you? Oh, that's literally. brilliant. Yeah, literally we were in bed one night and I said, better look at this. <laughs> anyway, and that said, the BuzzFeed quiz said our Italian city was Verona. Oh. And I'm like, oh, Shakespeare. Oh, that's good. Hmm. Anyway, so we put it on the list. So we had Florence, Verona and uh, Bologna. We went to Florence first, which was stunning, of course, but it's a stunning shit show. It's the, it's the most touristed city in the world. Yep. And I just said to Peter, they're sick of us and we haven't even arrived yet. You know, <laughs> the fatigue that people have when they deal with tourists all the time. Yes. Even yes. though they're so lovely in Florence, they're amazingly lovely. But it's a city that the, the, the own Florentines can't afford to live in anymore. Yeah. Ah, it's just, it was too much. Anyway, so I'm like, not Florence. Yeah. Then we went to Verona and the BuzzFeed quiz was wrong. <laughs> and this very interesting thing about Italian cities and towns is they all have got very distinct personalities. Yeah. Even within 20 minutes of each other. They've got their own regional dishes. They've got their own specialties. They've got. They they just see themselves as very different from each other. Yeah. And Verona was very different, very conservative. The women at the school that we went to, the, the, the international school there, were so rude oh, as dear. to be breathtaking. <laughs> we had not encountered that in Italy before. Yeah. Um, and Peter was like, if they think that I'm spending $100,000 to get treated like this, because sending four kids to an international school, and we've only ever gone to state schools, that's a lot yes. of money. That's It was a huge yeah. part of our budget. Yeah. Anyway, um, so that left Bologna. And within literally 20 minutes of arriving in Bologna, we went, this is it. Oh, fabulous. This is it. What a relief. (laughs) Well, thank goodness, because we didn't have anything else on our list. (laughs) You know. Um, So you ended up in Bologna. What were the biggest challenges living in Italy? 
Uh, language. Yeah. Language for sure. Uh, because Italy's not like a lot of other, like, or Scandinavian countries where you can guarantee that a lot of people speak English. And and the bureaucracy. Yeah. And, and a phenomenal <laughs> amount of bureaucracy that is run along Italian lines, which is, eh, eh, I know you've been waiting for two hours, but now we shut the office. <laughs> oh, it's like that. It's and and all our Italian friends were they they would laugh about it like they know the Italians know. A girlfriend of mine said to me once, "I sometimes wish we would be taken over by another country that's really good at paperwork." She said. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere like Denmark, you know. Ah, <laughs> uh, but then you wouldn't have all that um, joy of life and the. Well, you understand. Um, you know, the the siesta or the riposta, as the Italians call it, that break in the middle of the day, they need that to get a lot of stuff done and yep. also to make, make Italy so beautiful. Like mm. that doesn't happen by magic. <laughs> you know. Does that include their gorgeous-looking humans? Like yes. Italians can just yes. stunning. Yes. <laughs> because what happens is you go to work, you get there at 9 o'clock in the morning, maybe 9.30, you have a coffee and then you work for an hour. Then you work out where you're going to go for lunch. <laughs> then you go for lunch and then after lunch you have your riposta. So you come back to the office, maybe 3.30, oh, and wow. then you work out where you're going to go for aperitivo drinks, <laughs> which is, you know, your cocktail drinks after. And there's your day gone. Wow. A bit a lot of it is spent on making things beautiful for the world. It's it's not a um, it's not a shallow concept beauty in Italy. It's a very deep um, soul felt execution, full time execution, and we all enjoy the benefits of it. But it's also easy for people to go, "Oh, the Italians they don't work." I'm like, "Are you serious? You think it's easy to get those?" pots of flowers to grow by the side of the road <laughs> like what do you think that's magic it's not someone's done that you idiot <laughs> well obviously the challenges were enough to overcome because you ended up staying an extra year but mm. that meant that you were in Italy at the height of the coronavirus pandemic yes which must have been terrifying and and isolating and all of the things what was it like being expats in Italy at that time um a lot of expats went back to their countries of origin at the time you know like our neighbors in our in the palazzo we lived in a lot of them got recalled by their companies um and because Bologna is not a very touristy town anyway it was very unusual that we were Australians there we were very distinctive there, but it was kind of an honour to do it with the Italians. I mean, none of us knew what was happening, of course, but one thing that stopped the Italians from being their normal kind of law-bending selves was that we knew that it affected old people. And because old people are so venerated in Italy, like all old things, really, old buildings, they didn't muck around with it at all. None of us did. Like we were so faithful to it. And that is just, gosh, that is such a 
wonderful thing to hear because it felt here in Australia that people were almost like, oh, they're old, they're going to die anyway. And it was just like, oh, really? You're going to be old one day. Do you want people thinking that about you? Yeah. But I think it's culturally it's no secret that we have a more disposable view of our old people than they do in Italy where they, you know, they live intergenerationally and, Mm. you know, not exclusively. They do have some old age homes but they're very unusual. Mostly you, you live with your family. Yeah, I wish we were more like that. Well, I sort of do, but until, you know, I spent a whole day with my mother the other day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they do say, you know, everyone's talking now that we're kind of coming out of lockdown here and um, I say kind of just because, you know, we've still got a few restrictions in place, but um, people have been speaking a lot about what they are taking out of lockdown, what they want to keep integrated in their life coming back home from another country can be it can be joyful but it can also be devastating and hard to readjust what would you what are you trying to keep in your life from your time in Italy we've discussed this quite a lot it's a good question a sense of less rush a more discerning red pen when it comes to social obligations Mm -hmm. what you feel you have to do a cherishing of the people that while you're away you really knew it really crystallized for you that these are your people and also trying not to dress like such a slob (laughs) you know yes I do (laughs) like not like not go out wearing thongs like not wear a tracksuit pants to the shops. Like who's that nice for? That's not <laughs> nice for anybody. <laughs> I haven't necessarily succeeded at that. By the way, yeah, well, I'm sitting here in my active wear, so I can't comment. Mm, mm. Um, and what about what about food? Because I think that's one of the things I appreciate so much about my Italian um, relatives from my husband's side of the family is they have such a deep appreciation for simple food, good food, but also sharing food with family. Like that's what it was all about. I mean, I want to know if you can make gnocchi, Kate. Oh, um, yes, I can make gnocchi. And, in fact, I could make gnocchi before we went to Italy. <gasps> what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, in, and we did a couple of cooking classes, some with friends and some like formal cooking classes. And I was very happy to say after both of them where we made gnocchi, I said to Peter, I actually think my gnocchi is better. <laughs> now, that was the only time that I would have been able to say that about anything pasta-related in Italy. And, and what did Peter say? He's like, oh, I think it is. But, it, oh. I mean, he's got to go home with me. He's not going home with Italy, <laughs> is he? So... <laughs> And look, finally, Kate, it's a similar sort of question, but in the book you write about how part of the decision-making in terms of going to Italy is that you felt like you wanted a circuit breaker. You know, Uh you're in that kind of routine with kids and work and all that stuff. Did it end up being that circuit breaker that you hoped it would be? Completely, yes. It was without a doubt the greatest thing we've ever done. Oh, I love it. And we've done a lot of great things. But it was perfect. 
and perfect even with its attendant imperfections. But it was, yes, the greatest and we would go back in a heartbeat. Well, Kate, it's been such a pleasure talking to you about it. I'm going to go talk to my husband, plot a plan <laughs> before the well, kids are teenagers. Well, you've got to read the book, read the book, <laughs> and then you, you may change your mind, but I don't think you will. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Siobhan. That's Kate Langbrook. Her book is called Ciao, Bella. It's out now. For more info, check out the links in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.